Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Professor of Strength and Conditioning at Auckland University of Technology, Mike McGuigan. Tune in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, this episode is a follow on from Derek Hansen's episode last week. So, in Derek's episode, we discuss microdosing in a context of um, speed and conditioning, so anything that goes on the field. So, whereas this podcast differs with Mike, so we discuss microdosing in terms of strength and power, what goes on the gym. So, as well as that, we discuss a little bit around transfer of training and also strength profiling. So it's a really interesting episode with Mike, and if you're going through or have gone through a period of fixture congestion, and uh, trying your hardest to actually fit strength and power training into your program around that, then fixtures, uh, Mike offers some really good advice in this, uh, in this episode, so I'm sure you'll get tons out of it. And that's always fundamentally for me, a question that you need to be asking yourself when you're doing any sort of programming, um, is to, you know, be able to answer that question is why, why, why are you doing that? But just before we do get into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't heard of Vald Performance, they are the guys behind the Nordboard, the Groin Bar, and the all-new Human Track. So if you haven't heard of either of them three products, visit valdperformance.com. Uh, I'll follow them on Twitter at Performance. So their all-new human track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Connect and four IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. So human track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results with some more to come which will be openly available via the Valve Performance website when they do become available. So if you, like I said, if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products, visit valveperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at valveperformance. Also sponsoring this episode today is Forstex. So big thanks to Forstex for their continued support of the podcast. And if you are looking for a force plate hardware and software solution, visit forstex.com but also have a little look at episode 139 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So that's at strengthofscience.com forward slash 139, where co-owner of Forstech, Dr. Daniel Cohen, goes into a lot of detail with regards to all aspects of jump monitoring. Um, it's certainly not a sales pitch for Forstex, but you can get a real understanding of the capability and ease of use of Forstex uh, as re- with regards to the, the software. So if you are interested, Forstex.com is their website and follow them on Twitter at Forstex. So over to the podcast with Mike McGuigan. So for a well overdue part two, tonight I have Mike McGuigan on the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. So I think it was, well, it was over nearly four years ago, probably over four years ago since last time we uh, came on the podcast. So thank you for uh, thank you for agreeing to come on again. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a little bit of background on yourself uh, and what you're currently doing over in New Zealand. Sure. Yeah, I think it was 2014. I think it was the last time I was on uh, speaking to you. So it's, yeah, it's great to be back. Uh, I'm currently a professor of strength and conditioning at Auckland University of Technology. So I've been in this role now since 2013. Um, So also part of the Sports Performance Research Institute of New Zealand. I head up our strength and conditioning research group. Uh, Prior to this, I was working for High Performance Sport New Zealand as a sports scientist. And then before coming back to New Zealand, I think that was in 2009, I spent some time in the US and in Australia, working at various universities. But my current role is um, with AUT, and it's mainly working with postgraduate students. So I supervise quite a lot of masters, PhD students, uh, also do some undergraduate teaching, and the uh, normal administration that goes with academic roles. Nice. 
So you came over to the UK, say, last year to present. What did you think of the conference? Uh, yeah, it was really good. I, I think I presented there back in 2010 as well. Um, it's a really good conference from the standpoint, um, quite similar to the ASCA conference, I think. Um, a lot of really good practitioners and researchers coming together. And I think, um, yeah, really good just in terms of getting a lot of the top uh, S&C coaches and I found it really good in terms of the, the level of the presentations and just being able to talk to other researchers and other coaches and yeah I think the really good thing about the conferences like UKSCA and ASCA is that you know very very much a practitioner focus in terms of the information that's delivered and, and it, that sort of aligns with my philosophy what I've tried to do with the research that I've done is really look, look at answering questions that are of interest to to coaches and, and people working at the coalface. So, no, we really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Do you think the UK and the and Australia and New Zealand are on the, uh, kind of a similar trajectory with regards to how their – and ben, ben Jones comes to mind um, after you know speaking about him beforehand with the dissemination of research to uh, applied practitioners and making that gap a little bit smaller? Do you think they're on the same page with regards to that? I think so. I think, um, you know, there's really, it's been really good to see, I think, the last 10 years in particular, there's been a quite a big shift, uh, particularly in the way that universities are able to partner with sporting organisations. Um, and, and, you know, there's there's a lot of good stuff that happens in Australia. I mean, we, we're doing some stuff here in New Zealand and I think UK, you know, there's some really good um, places now where there's a really good interface between the researchers and the practitioners. And I think the other really good thing that I'm seeing as well is, um, you know, ha having spent a few years in the US and I, I get back to the NSCA conference reasonably regularly as well. I think the other thing you're starting to see over there as well is that there's some um, really good pockets of um, places where you're getting practitioners and, and coaches and, and researchers starting to um, have those conversations and come up with some research questions that um, can be really useful in terms of helping to improve athlete performance. Mm -hmm. so, so one thing I've, we, we spoke about this quite a bit with Ben and um, Joe Eisenman and a couple of other guys, but what is the one thing I haven't asked is the, the cost from a, from a, well, both sides of the camp, really from the university side and the professional club side, what are the costs involved to make that, um, that PhD student who's going to be embedded in the, professional club a lot of the time what are the what are the costs from both sides i know it might differ from new zealand to australia and australia to the uk but to, to get an idea of that might be might be cool yeah I, I mean i think the model that i've been involved with is we've we've worked in trying to do it as a um, phd scholarship um so it's really about trying to support the student um throughout their their postgraduate journey so for a, for a phd you're typically talking about a three-year Commitment um, for a master's, yeah, it's a, it's a two-year program generally. So, I mean, it varies with different countries. I mean, I've been involved with this in Australia and also um, now in New Zealand we've been doing it. So how we generally do it is try and um, do some sort of partnership where for the, for the sporting organisation, they're, they're covering the scholarship costs um, and then there might be some reciprocal arrangement where we perhaps have some matching funds that come from the university um, and then try and sort of build on fee scholarships as well. So it's one of those things we haven't really used a one-size-fits-all kind of model. It's, it's A lot of times it's really working with that particular sport or with that organisation and, and seeing what can work for them. So generally the, the cost would be the, the scholarship or the stipend for the student, but then there's also going to be, um, depending on the nature of the research that's happening, um, there might be associated costs in terms of you know, support for consumables or things that need, need to happen in the lab. And so that's where we try and, again, look at uh, avenues where whether that's from some external research grants or whether it's um, the sporting organisation contributing to that along with the university. So it's, um, you know, I think the, the, the thing about it to really make this work well is it needs to be a degree of flexibility that happens. Um, and so it's trying to come up with, with solutions as to how that happens. But, you know, as, as you've alluded to, um, it's, there's always the challenges around the funding side of it. But I think from a, from a sporting organisation standpoint, it's, um, 
and also from the university, it's a, it should be a win-win in terms of that, you know, for a fairly low cost in terms of, so, you know, for an average scholarship that we have here in New Zealand, we might be looking at sort of 30,000 30, to 35,000 New Zealand dollars. And so what we look at there is, um, you know, that commitment's over three years, and then we, um, that's the investment that's required. Um, and then on top of that, there might be some associated costs. But from the organisation's perspective, they are hopefully getting someone embedded in their organisation that's going to contribute um, in terms of helping to answer questions that they're really interested in that are going to help their help their performance and their athletes. And then at the same time, you've also got the um, the person on the ground that can help with some of the delivery of, of what's happening in, in the sport and in terms of the high performance program, so there's um you know there's definitely benefits all around. I think if it's if it's done well. Mm-hmm. Cool. So one thing that's come up in conversation quite a bit recently for me is um is some chat around fixture congestion, and that's born out of well most a lot of sports, but in in particular in soccer in football over here in the UK, and especially with the World Cup coming up in the summer which hopefully we go all the way and we're playing once every couple of days um for a two or three week period so it's just well i actually spoke to derek hansen um last week but it's maybe a couple of podcasts ago by, by the time this comes out um around microdosing and microdosing of the the on-field um components of of what an snc snc coach might be maybe responsible for but it'd be great to get your take on maybe microdosing as an approach for more strength and power based training and then i'll maybe throw some um some examples at, uh, at you um that i've heard of maybe people going about strength in, incorporating strength training in a couple of different ways but it'd be great to first get your opinion on microdosing uh, as a concept for strength and power work for maybe these guys who are going through difficult periods of um with fixture congestion? I mean, it's a great great concept from the standpoint that we know um, and the research tells us that, um, you know, it, it's, if we can maintain um, strength and power performance with um, in-season training, then it's a similar sort of concept that um, we want to find ways to be able to do that effectively. I mean, obviously, the scenarios you're t- talking about is where it becomes quite a challenge to do that. And, and I'm not aware of um, a lot of research where people have been able to do that in terms of you know, major campaigns or where you've got these kind of back-to-back games um, where um, incorporating training and how that can maintain some of those things can be done. I mean, there's certainly plenty of stuff that's been done looking at in-season training across a, across the season. And you know, you've often got scenarios, particularly with team sports, where um, clubs might be playing more than once a week. So, you know, it's how effectively you program. Um, and I think the research would suggest that yeah, it's it's important to have that regular stimulus. Um, so no, I think in terms of um, what you're talking about, if I understand the the concept in terms of microdosing, having these um, regular bouts of resistance exercise, which um, can act as a stimulus, and finding a way to incorporate those throughout a campaign, I think is is important. And I think you know there's an area which is quite interesting in terms of um, the whole what happens sort of 24 hours or on the day of a game, um, 24 hours prior. So this this idea of priming and using these short, sharp kind of stimulus workouts to get athletes primed or ready for performance. And there's, there's an emerging body of work now that's coming out that would suggest that's a pretty effective way of um, helping athletes in terms of their performance during the match. Um, so, I mean, there's, again, not a lot of great deal of, work there but I think there's enough stuff there and then also I see it just in terms of talking to practitioners working in different sports that it's a fairly common approach now so I think um, yeah coming up with a way to incorporate it um, and I think that the, the other aspect there that is important with looking at how that can be effectively implemented is looking at your monitoring that you have um, and keeping that as a um, part of your program just to see how your athletes are tracking through a tournament or through a campaign, and um, you know what what an what an individual athlete needs at a given time. I think um, that's where athlete monitoring can be particularly useful in terms of making those decisions. But yeah, I think it's um, 
as a concept and as something that I see in practice, um, it's something that, that people are using and it's always the question though of um, how do you fit it in and when's the best time to do it. Um, so you know, obviously the program and the fixtures and those sorts of things are going to be important in terms of driving those decisions. So would there be any specific benefit or negative in an ideal scenario from changing a um, uh, two lifts a week that are an hour to four that are half an hour? I know that's very open because of what's actually in them sessions, but in terms of the um, kind of perfect scenario and the response that you're going to get from a daily exposure to um, rather than a, um, you know, two days a week. Is there any positive, massive positives or massive negatives for doing that or not doing that? Um, I think there's, I, I would think there's positives in terms of um, keeping that stimulus going. Um, again, it's going to depend on the scenario we're in and you know, when the next game is. And you know, so it's, I, I don't think there's going to be negatives necessarily from um, cutting back a session and maintaining some intensity at the the, again, the research and season stuff would suggest that that seems to be the key key variable that we, we need to be looking at is the intensity of the stimulus. Um, so, so it's pretty simple decision around how much volume do you drop it off, and and it could be even a scenario where you're just getting the athletes in for twenty minutes or so to um, get some sort of strength stimulus or power stimulus or whatever it is, um, and using that, I think is enough evidence from the limited work that's been done on priming particularly to suggest that that's going to have a um, have a beneficial effect so it's again um, just trying to make that decision within the context of what the what the program is you're working in and um, you know what you have available I mean often it comes down to and I know just from being involved with some some different sports and different campaigns where a lot of it is just the access to um, the gym and and so sometimes again a practitioner has to make that decision is it worthwhile um, getting into a scenario where you might be having to take the athletes off site to go and go to the gym and they're only going to be doing this sort of 15-20 minute session um, so it's kind of weighing those factors up and you know, do, do you go through that whole process of transporting the athletes to where they need to go to do that if there's not a gym available in the hotel. But then on the, the other side, it's, um, you know, a lot of teams now will travel with equipment, like they'll have bands and, and different things that they can use with the athletes. I know when my time working with netball, that's that's one of the things that we did is we, we tried to use a fairly flexible approach in terms of um, setting up sessions that um, didn't necessarily rely on us getting into a a gym setting where you could do some things um, where the athletes could do things just perhaps in their room or wherever it was um, in the hotel. So just thinking through different scenarios and planning for that. Um, and I think, you know, there's definitely going to be some benefits if you can incorporate those those shorter, sharper sessions. Because um, I think the problem can be is if, if that, that stuff goes out the window, um, that it can, you can see um, potentially some negatives that can occur particularly if it's across a fairly long campaign where you might have the athletes sort of four to six weeks of time um, and they're doing a lot of stuff on the on the pitch or on the court or whatever it, whatever it is. Um, and then usually, from my experience, one of the first things that does get dropped from the program is the, is the resistance training, the strength training stimulus. So um, finding ways to incorporate that, I think, can have a lot of benefits. So one thing that I've heard of a couple of times with regards to, and this may be a, a soccer thing, a football thing, because the culture of, of um, you know, going to the gym or, or not going to the gym a lot of the time is to put fatigue on fatigue with regards to strength training and put it in kind of the day after a game when the guys are, are tired already. So they might do the kind of theory is, well, they're tired, so the miles away more tired. Um, obviously, with the maximizing the, the gap between the strength training and the next game, which is of, often three or four days um, post-lift. Is that something that you've come across? Is that something that you would see as a, a massive positive or a massive negative strategy? Um, yeah, I, it's not something I've come across personally or um, seen a lot of. Um, I, I would question what the value of that would be just in terms of um, 
providing any sort of stimulus or effective training for the athlete. Um, you know, for me, I, I guess it depends what the goal of what your um, strength training is, is, um, you know, what are you trying to achieve? And that's always fundamentally for me a question that you need to be asking yourself when you're doing any sort of programming um, is to, you know, be able to answer that question is why, why, why are you doing that? Um, so I, I couldn't really see why that would be um, beneficial um, the day after a game. I suppose, again, it's looking at you're going to have to consider that within the context of your program and what's happening in the next few days and um but you know certainly for me if i was um approaching it i would not be recommending um sort of a heavy type of session the day after a game um you know just again what my question would be what's the what's the value of that um you know in terms of getting players ready for the the next game i mean i don't see any benefit in terms of the gym based stuff there in terms of recovery modality so yeah it would be be something don't don't think it would be something i would recommend Mm -hmm. sweet um and going back to the the priming stuff that you've that you've mentioned a couple of times so what would you say say again on a saturday what what is the what's been um and out there in terms of research with regards to recommendations for optimizing that what's going on on the friday um, building up to that game on the Saturday, and how? What's your opinion on how that works in practice? Yeah, I think first thing would be that we're probably not at a point yet with it where we can give really specific guidelines around optimization. I think it's you know again it's it's early days in terms of the way people are doing it. So what I would say is that, um, and what I've seen in practice, and you actually I'm involved with a. Um, a PhD project at the moment where the student's going to be looking at that. It's in collaboration with um, Vince Kelly from UQ, University of Queensland and Brisbane Broncos. So, you know, we're going to, it's one of the things we're really interested in is, um, you know, are there things that can you can do on the morning? Because one of the challenges, obviously, is the players or, or the fixtures when they're scheduled. But generally speaking, from what I've seen and just talking to other people, um, it's around, you know, so for the players generally have got a, got a game in the evening, then it's, um, you know, in that sort of six-hour to eight-hour window beforehand, are there things that can be done um, in terms of getting the, the athletes ready? And so, you know, I think at least in Australia and New Zealand, it's fairly common practice now, um, the morning of the game, sort of late morning, if the play, if they're playing in the evening, that they'll do some sort of priming session. Um and I know people have been playing around with different uh, formats of how that looks. So whether that's where the athletes are doing something in the gym and they'll just do one or two lifts, um, or whether you get them out on the field and do some sort of um, short, sharp stimulus, like some sprints. Um, wh- one of the interesting things, just from the, the limited work that's been done, and I know um, Liam Kildoff's done some work in this area, um, is that, you know, I don't think there's again a one size fits all approach. So, at least it would appear that um, you probably want to look at coming up with approaches that might be a better fit for certain types of athletes. And I know, again, when I was working in netball, it was something we used on um, game day where we would identify players that um, seem to get more benefit out of a certain type of priming session. So, generally, it's something that's done on, on the day of the game. Um, and I think there's some really interesting stuff that could be done around the profiling of, of individual athletes. So there may be that some athletes that respond better to a strength stimulus. There might be some athletes that respond better to more a velocity type of stimulus, and at least that's with some of the preliminary work that we did was something that we were seeing with the, with the players, um, and this was a netball. Um, I know that another approach is for people to do things um, – Looking at, looking at doing things 24 hours before. Um, so, you know, it's, there's a lot of unanswered questions. You know, it's around what's what what modalities really work well, what's the best timing to do it. Um, and then the other, the other challenge around it as well is that you've also got uh, problems or, or at least challenges around, you know, answering questions within the performance aspect. So... You know, players might report that they feel better. Um, 
but then how do you measure actually what the impact is on match performance? And that's always really the challenge for us, particularly um, when you're working in team sports. So is what we're doing actually having an impact on performance? And so that's, you know, that's often the gap and it's, it's a really hard question to answer. So how were you profiling these, the netball, I'm going to assume it's girls, the netball girls to. Yeah. So what we would, yeah, so we would do a, um, and we did quite a lot of force velocity profiling with the players. So we had a power profile that we we would use um, pretty regularly where we would look at various types of um, vertical and horizontal jumps uh, and and drop jumps as well. So that we we sort of had a standard profile that we did um, every few weeks. And so we, we and we were seeing quite big differences in terms of the the profiles that we were seeing. Um, and so one of the things we did look at was looking at those players that were, uh, I would say, more force dominant. So looking that that sort of sat at that end of the curve. Um, and so we were looking at with those players, and we actually did this where we we measured them um, prior to trainings and then also um, practice matches. They played a lot of um, inter-squad games. Um, So we were able to kind of replicate game day conditions. And and one of the interesting things was uh, with the force dominant players using a a stimulus which was more of a strength stimulus, high intensity. Um, And then the the athletes that were more velocity uh, dominant, I suppose, using something which is a bit more at that end of the curve, so uh, looking at some unloaded jumps and drop jumps and those types of things, more reactive type of work, and so it seemed to be um, seemed to be a different response. One of the would be quite an interesting um, experiment to kind of look at that and see you know what would happen if you did the opposite, um, if there would be any sort of beneficial effects there. But those are the sorts of things that we were we were looking at. And what we were seeing again was that it was a pretty individual response in terms of um, the benefits they were getting. Um, and w- we were looking at um, a lot of really simple performance measures like things like jump height and power output and those sorts of things. Um, so, um, you know, again, the question comes how well does that relate to on court performance? Um, so, yeah, but from a just from that sort of simple approach, we were. Um, seeing some um, definite improvements in terms of when we had that stimulus and when we didn't have it. So it's just, a, um, I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done, but it's um, yeah, it's an interesting concept anyway. So was, was there any non-responders? And if there, if there was or is um, for any people out there, would you recommend just pulling them from the, from the priming activities altogether? Yeah, I think um, you def- definitely you see um, – larger responses in certain athletes and then you see athletes that don't really seem to get a lot of benefit so again it's you you've got to weigh it up i think and look at the the whole the whole athlete and and some players may have a preference to do certain things um that helps them get ready for their for their match for their game so I think, again, it's you've got to look at it on a case-by-case basis, um, and it's all about optimising performance for that individual athlete and setting them up to perform at their best within the within that particular game. So, you know, I, again, I don't think, again, you want to, you would say, based on um, some simple measures like we did, perhaps, that you would necessarily say, okay, that player has to do that particular session. It would be one where you would also have a conversation with the athlete and talk about okay, well, what what what's your preferred um, approach in terms of what you want to do the morning of a game. Um, it may be that, that for certain players they're going to just be better off resting and sleeping a bit longer in the morning. And um, so again, I think you know you've got to um, with a lot of these types of approaches, um, there can be a tendency to kind of have a, a set schedule that everyone kind of follows in terms of the way they do things. But, you know, I think if you can individualise it, the the evidence would, sh- would show that that's a, um, a better way to go about it. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Mike. So in part two, uh, more on strength and power profiling, as well as more on transfer of training and finishing off the chat about microdosing and dealing with uh, fixture congestion. 
But just before we do get into part two, just want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box Fitness are a gym equipment manufacturer and distributor. So they're based in Northern Belfast in Northern Ireland. All their equipment is manufactured on site, which for me personally is a really big thing to have the manufacturing go on um, in kind of striking distance of, uh, of where I live. So if you are interested in upgrading your gym, a completely new facility, or just um, the bits and bobs that kind of keep you ticking over, consider Black Box Fitness. Uh, the guys there are really good, really helpful, um, and they can be found at BLK Box Fitness on Twitter and blkboxfitness.com is their website. So make sure you check them out. Also, big thanks to the Football Association for supporting this podcast today. So all four sponsors, so all three sponsors and the FA for supporting uh, allow this podcast to continue in its current form. So thanks to the FA and Black Box Fitness for uh, supporting and sponsoring. So over to part two with Mike. I hope you enjoy. Just not on that kind of transfer of training theme, with going back to the fixture, uh, fixture congestion kind of starting point um, that I mentioned. Obviously, with with limited time, coaches want to be sure that what they're doing is going to maximise the time that they have with their players, whether that be twenty minutes a day, twenty minutes a week. How? What's the process that you would go through? You encourage coaches to go through to um, maybe justify in their own head that what they're doing is actually doing what they want and, and maximizing that, that time and then transferring onto the, onto the pitch. If that's what, if that's their, their desire, if that's the goal of their, their program, what does that process look like for maximizing that transfer onto the, onto the pitch? Um, well, I think the, the first step is to, um, you know, have, have everyone on the same page in terms of, um, your whole support team because I think that's again that's where we sometimes get ourselves into um, problems with this whole issue of maximizing performance is that um, you know, it's important to have those conversations across all of the the support staff so it's important I think that the people involved in the medical side with the technical side with the conditioning side the performance analysts analyst side, all of that needs to be integrated. Um, so I think that's a really important um, starting point that's going to help with um, that side of things. Um, but I think in in terms of um, transfer to performance, do you, you, you mean more from the standpoint of what the training sessions look like or the type of exercises that they're doing? Because I think, yeah, again, it's there's so many pieces that go into that performance puzzle in terms of um, getting optimal transfer it's a really it's such a big area it's um, <laughs> it's quite a hard one to really nail in terms of what you what what your, your sessions look like and but I think a big starting point is obviously that everyone is on the same page in terms of um, understanding what that athlete looks like in terms of what they need from a performance standpoint and from a training standpoint, that's um, you know always a really important starting point, I think. Okay, perfect. So getting that starting point right, um, I'm guessing makes me think about um, pulling all these areas together and actually profiling this this athlete to see where they are now, to see where you know taking them forward. From your point of view, what would be the from an SNC the kind of SNC um, angle? What would be your kind of first part of call with trying to paint this picture of where this athlete is when they re- arrive um, at the club, or um, to you know, in terms of diagnostics um, for, to see where they are at this current moment in time? Um, yeah, I mean, ideally, you would want to have a initial, um, I guess, case management in terms of um, with with all of those people that I mentioned involved in those conversations right from the start. Um, because, you know, as we know, there's the, the, the S&C side of it is just one part of it. Um, so, you know, the best best approaches that I've seen are where you do have those um, conversations early on in terms of, you know, case management or athlete management or whatever you want to call it, um, where you've got people sitting around a table and, and also with the athlete as well having those discussions initially 
Um, but then I think, yeah, obviously the diagnostics and the assessment um, is really important as well. So it's, you know, that just that basic needs analysis um, that we do and identifying what the athlete needs and where they're at. So that's where, depending on, on the sport, I think a, a really important starting point is to um, do that profiling and decide what needs to be assessed and then go through that process of assessment and identify where the gaps are. Um, and that's, again, I think needs to be done in concert with those those other areas. Um, you know, we think it's good. The good thing is we're moving away, I think, from is the siloing that ten, had tended to happen um, in athlete preparation. So if you can get that first part of the process right um, and identify what the needs are, and that's comes back to that that profiling and, and assessment and then have your own ongoing monitoring set up um, so that you've got regular check-ins with how things are progressing and regular contact where people are having those conversations about that individual athlete and, and what's working and what's not working and you know, looking at the whole big picture I think that's um, ideally how it, how it would work. Um, the challenge is obviously for for those people that are working in um, environments where you're not just dealing with a small group of athletes, you've got a large number of athletes and that's where it can become more of a challenge. But always a good starting point, I think, is to have a um, have a clear idea of what the needs are of the athlete and, and that's where the assessment can be really important. If it, and if it's done well and you're getting good information, then that can help really drive your decisions around the programming and how that all looks. Is there any common threads that would be a given for you no matter what the situation just that they're human in terms of the types of uh, in terms of the, in terms sorry in terms of the types of testing and and um kind of trying to paint that picture any common threads that would run through that kind of physical picture from an snc point of view that would run through all the way depending, um, you know not uh, dependent on the sport yeah i think it, it, a lot of it depends on the sport you're dealing with but um you know in general, I think if you're looking at a team sport, you know, you've got, you you want to have some um, measure of those physical capacities. So, you know, the strength component, the, the power component, the, um, the aerobic endurance, the, the repeat sprint capacity, there's you know, a whole, all, all of those sort of standard ones that we look at. Um, you, you're generally going to have, I think, as a practitioner, you're going you're to get a pretty good sense of um, the tests that, uh, important and give you good information across those particular sports. I think where we can get ourselves into uh, problems is where we do start to over-assess. Um, and, you know, this is something, you know, it's been a, something that I've sort of thought a lot about over the years and um, probably earlier on, my, on in my career, I probably had a lot more tests that I would do. Um, and so as I've gone along, I've, been able to, I think, identify what gives you the maximal information. Um, and so you don't necessarily have to have a, a battery of um, 10 to 15 tests necessarily that you're going to use with all of the athletes. I think you, you'll, you need to come up with uh, good reasons as to why you are using the tests you are. And sometimes um, less is more in these situations. And then, you know, we know the other thing you, we, we find as well is that you might be um, you might be doing a range of tests and there might be two tests that are really giving essentially the same information. So do you do you really need to have both of those tests that you do? Um, but generally speaking, I think you know, it, it's it's driven by the the individual sport and it's going to look somewhat different depending on the nature of the sport. So that's where you you, you do your, your basic needs analysis at the start and identify um, what assessments you're going to use and. Um, you know, making sure that they're reliable and they're valid is um, really important. Um, and then the, the other part of it as well is also identifying that they're tests that are actually giving you useful information. So, you know, I, I do a lot of talks on this sort of area and it's one of the things I always kind of mention um, in every presentation is that's an important question with any assessment that you do is that you need to ask that question, is this tests that I'm doing going to give me useful information about my athletes and my program and and if you can't answer that question um, and you haven't got an answer for it then it's probably just a matter of not using it I think um, is, is a 
strategy there. Mm-hmm. So I remember reading your chapter, just so I just changed tact a little bit, um, reading your chapter in uh, High Performance Training for Sports, and um, I think it was on Smallest Worthwhile Change that I was, that I was mentioning in the chapter. So I'd just like to chat a little bit around kind of using stats in um, in a kind of applied environment. What are the, I mean, it might be good to start with some resources where people can, um, that you know of, that people can actually read about this stuff and, and learn about these these kind of examples that may be uh, applicable to be um, to be utilized in an applied environment and, and telling a story with the data, all the data that's been collected. Is there any specific resources out there that you would point people to? Uh, yeah, the great thing in this area now is there's lots of um, things online which you can access. Um, so, you know, if you want to sort of start at the higher end um, in terms of understanding it, you know, some of the stuff I think for people gets a little bit challenging just in terms of if you don't have that, um, you know, a lot of a lot of us struggle with the, the maths and the stats um, and it's never usually the favourite um, subject that any of my students <laughs> life <laughs> involved in this area but I mean Will Hopkins has obviously done a lot of really good work in this area um, so his um, his stats site the new view of statistics website um, I think it's a really good starting point just in terms of giving you a general overview of the concepts and then talking about the practical application of statistics and it's all related to athlete performance as well so I think that's where um, it's it's a good good starting point the other um, website that's really good, or it's a YouTube channel, is um, John Lythe is doing some really good work, and he puts out a lot of stuff out there that um, is freely available where it's Microsoft Excel-based, um, where he goes through the whole process of how you can set up spreadsheets, and a lot of his work, he talks about these concepts of how you might want to set it up to look at different ways of plotting athlete data, um, calculating some of these statistics as well within the spreadsheets as well. So I think that would be another really good resource. Um, Anthony Turner as well has got some a few YouTube um, channels as well, or YouTube videos as well that he's done, which are really good as well in terms of explaining those um, concepts. So you know, in terms of looking at just the, the how-to of doing some of these things, um, those, are, um, those are ones that I always point um, my students towards in terms of just looking at ease of use and, and looking at how we can um, apply some of these statistics. So that's that, those are probably the best resources that come to mind. But there, there, are, there are also a few um, few articles and things, and I'm, I'm certainly happy to send through a few links that you can post as well where people can get some um, a bit more information on some of these approaches. Um, because yeah, you know, again, it's always a challenge, isn't it? To um, how do we present information to coaches and athletes, and then how do we analyse the information, and then understanding as well if we see an improvement in in performance or, or decrement in performance, what what's meaningful? Um, so what what do we need to be worried about? And so I think if people, if you can have a basic understanding of just some of those concepts like reliability and validity. And what is a smallest meaningful change in performance? Then it can be a really useful um, thing to have as a practitioner. Sweet. Well, I'll put all them. Um, I'll put all them links. There's some good ones, and John is an absolute legend. When you're just just on the brink of throwing your laptop out the window, um, definitely email John via his uh, via his YouTube channel because he's, he's. I'm sure he's helped thousands of people out who are just on the brink of head explosion with Excel. Um, so yeah, definitely uh, check John's uh, YouTube channel out. But it's becoming it's becoming quite a cool thing, Mike, isn't it? The um, the stats side of things. I know you said that your students particularly despise it, but it's becoming quite a cool thing with people delving into R and all these kind of programs. Are you seeing that kind of thing over there as well? Yeah, I think. Yeah, no, I, I I am. I think yeah, you do you do have um, some people really struggle with it, um, and I think it. One of the challenges always with this type of thing is that, um, you know, we're always challenged in terms of time. And so you've got to make a decision around, um, you know, what's worthwhile for you as a, as a practitioner, um, investing time and learning and upskilling. In. But I think 
universities as well, I think, are recognising this is a fundamental skill as well that um, our students need to be aware of. So I think you're seeing it starting to be embedded more in the curriculum um, at universities. So, so there's been a bit of a shift where, you know, and I know my, a lot of my students um, have really good skills in this area. Um, and so, you know, just the basic programming skills and things that are incorporated into programs now um, and that's, and it, again, from the standpoint of um, data visualisation and presenting information and using um, things like R as well. Yeah, look, it's, there's been a real shift. People are starting to embrace that and realise the value of it, um, that it can really help with the process of how you do things. And it can actually, if you do spend that front-end time learning how to do it and do it quite well, it can actually save you a lot of time down the track as well. Um, so... I think that's that's always the challenge is, is finding the time to upskill yourself. Um, but at least everyone that I've talked to that's done that um, would say that there's a lot of benefits um, that happen when you do that, do spend that time, and it can really help with your your work and and, and help in terms of being able to present the information. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that's really useful for as well is that if you are in a situation where you're collecting a lot of information. Um, from testing or from monitoring, the time that you spend on that, I think you get a better, better handle on understanding what the, the numbers actually mean. And so I think that helps you as a practitioner in terms of making decisions around what's worthwhile and what's meaningful. And so I think the, the more time you can spend on that, the, the better, but it's, it's the challenge is, is finding the time to be able to do that. Just to play devil's advocate, advocate here a little bit, are we sometimes? Do you think we're sometimes getting ahead of ourselves with moving towards this, like you say, the R using R and things like that? When there's a lot of basic stuff that isn't been done like it, just in terms of like uh, maybe an example that we've used already, like in soccer, where just getting getting the players in the gym isn't a common thing, and then you've got guys you know who are coming and doing PhDs or you know coming out of university with skills that maybe that we're moving it too quick for the actual applied environment a lot of the time yeah it's a good point I mean it's a, and it's a discussion that you you see pretty regularly on um, social media as well I've noticed um, and it's, it's a really good point I think you know sometimes we can lose sight of those real basic things um, and, and I think there's a perception out there that that's that's happened to an extent um, but uh, you know I'm, I'm certainly not saying that you, you want to invest all your time in, this, in, in, in that side of it um, and, and ignore all, of, all those other things. Like the, the, the coaching skills, for example, is something that's obviously really, really important um, and about the ability to interact and communicate with athletes and, and other coaches. And that's, that's a fundamental um, thing that needs to happen. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important that we don't lose sight of that. And, and, and as you alluded to, the other thing as well is that the actual programming and, and being able to um, show people how to do the lifts and coach them and prescribe and all those sorts of things as well. Those, those are also um, fundamental skills um, that, you know, we don't want to lose sight of. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's like anything in terms of your, your own professional development and, and setting your own. Um, and, and, and obviously it's going to depend on, if you're part of a, of a larger team of um, coaches that are working. So, you know, maybe there's a, a scenario where you might have, if you've got a group of coaches that you work with, that there's two or three of those coaches that are really upskilled in, in some of that um, statistical analysis and data visualization and things that can be your kind of specialist go-to people, whereas other members of the team don't need to um, necessarily have those skills to the same extent. And, and, you know, again, I think that's a way that you could um, overcome some of those potential issues. But, yeah, you're certainly – you're right. I think um, we don't want to lose sight of the, um, the, the the fundamentals of what we need to be doing as strength conditioning coaches. It's really, really important. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I'm just going to uh... – Bring it to an end, Mike, and really thank you for your for your time. But where can people um, where can people keep the date? What you've got going on, and the guys that you have around you as well that are doing um, doing some really good work. Where what's the best place to keep in touch with them and, and obviously yourself? 
Um, so we do have a website for Sprints, um, so for the Sports Performance Research Institute. So that's um, sprints.aut.ac.nz. Um, so that's that's our website where we have our different areas. So strength conditioning is a, a big focus of what we do, but there's also um, a lot of areas as well within that as well, so the physiology and the performance analysis. So some other areas there as well. Um, in terms of um, social media, the, the main one that I use is Twitter. So my handle is Mike underscore McGuigan. Um, so if happy if anyone wants to reach out through there um, to ask any questions, that's um, probably the best place to get hold of me. Perfect. Happy days. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Really appreciate it. And all the um, are all the publications uh, hosted on the on the website on the Springs website. Are they under Individual Research Gate or whatever it may be? Uh, so yeah, probably the individual researchers would have Research Gate. I mean, I certainly do. So um, you can search for me under there. But um, within the website as well, it identifies the different researchers and. Uh, many of us also have links through to our Google Scholar um, account. So that's another place where you can search for individual researchers and get links. I mean, the great thing now is obviously it's um, it's really a lot easier now to source what people are doing and, and the publications they're involved with. So in terms of platforms, you know, ResearchGate and um, Google Scholar are probably two that are really useful for people, I think. Perfect. Happy days, Mike. Thank you very much for giving it me time. And it's been uh, it's been four years too long. So thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Massive thanks to Mike for giving up his time to do a second episode and a follow-up to what we discussed uh, three or four years ago. Also, big thanks to the Football Association for supporting this podcast. And Foul Performance, Black Box Fitness and Force Decks for also supporting this podcast. So if you are enjoying the content that is coming every week uh, from the podcast, please make some time to show your appreciation in a honest rating and review if you are indeed an iTunes listener. If you go on the iTunes app, you can uh, scroll down to the bottom and leave a rating and review. It just makes a massive difference in iTunes ratings um, in terms of who comes across the podcast and... Uh, ultimately how many people come into contact with it and uh, eventually listen so really appreciate in advance uh, you doing that and thank you for your support as always and i will speak to you in the next episode